You'll note that we've already had a fairly lengthy order of service to this point and uh, we are well behind time uh, as to what we would like to be. But nonetheless, uh, we have a message before us uh, that uh, even if you all leave, I still must preach. So if people start leaving, that's okay. I must get through this message because the Lord has just placed such a huge uh, burden in one sense and blessing uh, upon my heart in preparation for this and uh, so many things didn't go to plan uh, in my plan I should say everything went to God's plan um, but here we are and we are in our fourth of our five sessions on the Reformation and uh, to begin us again let me just remind us of our solar system that has been our pictorial image of what it is we are doing. We began the first week by looking at Sola Scriptura, which is Scripture alone. And in this we learned that the foundation is the written word of God alone. And that's what the Reformers stood for. Next we tackled the subject of Sola Gracia, which is grace alone, the first pillar uh, in this picture. And then uh, Lucas uh, preached a, uh, a wonderful exposition of Sola Fide, faith alone. Uh, and in that we dealt with the fact that it is by grace, but it is through faith. Justification by faith alone. That leaves us with one final pillar here, Solo Christo, or Solus Christus, as it says on that over there, both very similar terms. Christ alone, these pillars all form Uh, The reality of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And I'm hoping those terms are beginning to really mean something for us. And then finally, next week, Lord willing, we will look at the covering, the total, uh, the summary of the whole aspect of this gospel message. And that is that it is for the glory of God alone. And that is, if you like, our picture for the month. And uh, we've seen this a few times now, and uh, that's, uh, that's where we're headed. And today, solo Christo, what a subject. Christ alone. And before I commence my preaching this morning, I want to begin by reading a short summary of the life of Christ written by James Allen Francis, and it's entitled One Solitary Life. Here is what he writes. Here is a man who was born in an obscure village, the child of a peasant woman. He grew up in another obscure village where he worked in a carpenter shop until he was 30. And then for three years, he was an itinerant preacher. He never wrote a book. He never held an office. He never owned a home. He never had a family. He never went to college. He never put his foot inside a big city. He never traveled 200 miles from the place where he was born. He never did one of the things that usually accompany greatness. He had no credentials but himself. He had nothing to do with this world except the naked power of his divine manhood. While still a young man, the tide of public opinion turned against him. His friends ran away. One of them denied him. He was turned over to his enemies. He went through the mockery of a trial. He was nailed to a cross between two thieves. 
His executioners gambled for the only piece of property he had on earth while he was dying, and that was his coat. When he was dead, he was taken down and laid in a borrowed grave through the pity of a friend. Nineteen wide centuries have come and gone, and today he is the centerpiece of the human race and the leader of the column of progress. I am far within the mark when I say that all the armies that ever marched and all the navies that ever were built and all the parliaments that ever sat, all the kings that ever reigned, put together have not affected the life of man upon this earth as powerfully as has this one solitary life. Solo Christo, literally through Christ alone, is the doctrine that divides all religion from Christianity. It is this assertion that makes the world angry. It is this assertion that forces them to call us exclusive, cult-like, arrogant, and unwilling to play nice with other religions. Although Solo Christo was recovered at the time of the Reformation, it is a truth that needs to be guarded throughout every generation. It is not simply the Roman Catholic Church that has obscured this truth, but every single religion under the sun. From the enlightenment of the Buddhist to the black magic of the witch doctors and everything in between, all belief systems outside of Christianity oppose the truth that salvation is through Christ alone. The gospel at its core is not a series of creeds or doctrinal statements. It is a person. And that person is the Lord Jesus Christ. The heart of the gospel is solo Christo through Christ alone. And solo Christo is exclusive. It cannot be earned. It cannot be altered. It cannot be improved. It cannot be purchased. And failure to believe this truth in life results in eternal damnation which cannot be changed. Join me this morning as I preach a message entitled Solo Christo through Christ alone, the final pillar of the Reformation. Lord, you are completely aware of uh, my total dependence upon you for this time of preaching now. Uh, Lord, free us from distractions, I pray. Uh, Lord, engage our hearts and our minds, uh, our minds to be uh, employed in this incredible subject to which we look today. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would cause me to be able to deliver this message in a way that would uh, help people to see just what it means for us today, what it meant for the reformers, uh, and how important this truth is for us to defend uh, and to delight in. Uh, Lord, I pray for your strength and your enablement in this time to come. In Jesus' name, amen. Each week we've had a glossary of terms and we're going to begin with that once again. A brief glossary of terms. And the point of this, as I have said in the past, is that we want to understand what these reformers were fighting for and what they were fighting against. And I have three terms for us this morning if you're taking notes. The first is the term mediator. Mediator. 
mediator. Now, before I give you a definition, let me tell you that the problem with this term mediation or mediator is not in the definition. It's in the application. A mediator is a middle man between two opposing parties. The one who mediates stands in the gap and sympathizes with both and is trusted by both. The mediator represents each side to the other with the goal of mending what is a broken relationship. Where we fall into great tragedy as we look at history is that in Roman Catholic theology, Christ is considered, and hear this, one of the means of mediation. One of the means between God and man. Others include the Pope, the priests, the saints, Mary, and many traditions and practices within the church. And we'll discuss some of these great and grave errors in some detail in a few moments. The second term for our consideration this morning is a three-word term because they are interrelated. Propitiation, satisfaction, or sufficiency. All three of those. Propitiation, satisfaction, or sufficiency. It's not a spelling test. doesn't matter if you get it spelt wrong. Okay. Propitiation, satisfaction, or sufficiency. These are interconnected terms. And they are central to the Reformation. Luther, Zwingli, Calvin and others argued that Christ's sacrifice for sin met all the demands of a holy God and was sufficient to appease his wrath over sin. The Roman Catholic Church, however, on the other side, denies this fact and they demand penance Prayers, mass, confession, performing of the sacraments and many other man-made extra-biblical traditions as the means of appeasing God's wrath. Propitiation, satisfaction and sufficiency, key terms. Last major term for our consideration by way of a glossary this morning is the term merit, merit. In Roman Catholic teaching at the backdrop of the Reformation, pardon for sin could not be attained without what's called a meritorious act. By this is meant a deed that was so intrinsically righteous that it extinguished the effects of sin and satisfied the justice of God, although only temporarily. On the other side, the reformers assert the fact that only the substitutionary merits of Christ and his righteousness and his work upon the cross can bring about the pardon of a sinner. Protestantism as a whole rejects the notion that humans can earn rewards from God by performing righteous deeds for salvation and thereby placing them in some kind of spiritual credit. So we have the mediator, we have propitiation, satisfaction or sufficiency, and we have merit. And that is the quickest you're ever going to see me give those three definitions in history. So mark it down because there's so much more to it. Let's move on to the part that really is our focus for today, point number two, which I have entitled, Declaring and Delighting 
in the exclusivity of Christ. Declaring and delighting in the exclusivity of Christ. I am not seeking to sound clever. Please don't think that. These words are chosen very carefully and terms that are very important for us. Declaring and delighting in the exclusivity of Christ. Now, by exclusivity this morning, I am asserting the fact to us today that salvation is only possible through Jesus Christ. That was the teaching of Christ himself. That was the teaching of the apostles. That was the teaching of the reformers. And that is the teaching of our church today. Christ alone. In fact, when I pulled out Martin Luther's great commentary on Galatians, which I have referred to more this month than ever in my history, he writes... Uh, In the preface, he says, in my heart reigns this one article, faith in Christ, from him and through him and to him. All my theological thinking is flowing and reflowing by day and by night. And we say, Amen, Luther. To say that salvation is found in Christ alone is to place a great big target upon yourself in today's culture. And I think we know that. However, nothing is more important in life than understanding that Jesus Christ is the only means of salvation from sin. All who would know the joy of pardoned sin, the privilege of adoption into the family of God, the freedom from sin's devastating yoke must enter through the narrow gate that is Jesus Christ. In marriage vows, we are accustomed to hear a couple proclaim their willingness to forsake all others in pursuit of their spouse, and so they ought to. But so too the sinner must avow to forsake all other perceived means of redemption in order to apprehend salvation through Christ alone. There must be an understanding that it is Christ and him alone by which I must be saved. So to help us understand what this exclusivity really means and how it relates to the Reformation... I have a number of subpoints, and I can see the surprise and shock on your faces. So, first of all, subpoint number one to consider here, and I want to do this in the form of a competition, if I may—not com- competition for you, but in a verses sola Christo, the teaching of Christ alone, versus sola ecclesia. You say, what? What is going on here? Let me explain. The word ecclesia is the Greek word called out, which in our Bible is church. And what I am suggesting here is that there is a great competition between the Protestant reformers and the Roman Catholic Church back there in the 1500s and the 1600s. And the the competition, if I can call it that, is between Christ alone and the church alone. And here's what I mean by that. Roman Catholic theology teaches that the church, as the surrogate bride of Christ, is the means of redemption. You say, how is that possible? Well, in other words, the church of Rome is the mediator between sinners and God. It is through their pope. 
It is through their priests. It is through their saints. And it's through that forgiveness of sin that is uh, given to them by those people that salvation from sin is realized in that religious establishment. And it is through their sacraments and their rites and their traditions and their rituals that salvation is maintained. Understand this, please, this morning. There are two things. The Roman Catholic Church tells us that forgiveness of sin is realized through those means and it is maintained through those means. Deadly, dangerous, devastating doctrines. And let me say very quickly, Jesus is involved in their message of redemption. Let's not forget for a moment that he's in the message of redemption for the Roman Catholic Church. But he is not exclusively the means of redemption. Nor can it be maintained by him. There are many passages in the Bible which refute this heresy and I'd like us to look some of those up. If you would turn with me this morning quickly to Acts chapter 4 and verse number 12. Acts chapter 4 and verse 12. And we'll turn to a few just to put us in the picture here. Acts chapter 4 and verse 12. It's the apostle Peter who is preaching, having healed a crippled man and being in trouble with, no doubt again, the religious leaders of the day. And we have in the midst of this discussion an incredible truth. Acts 4 and verse 12, Peter says, And there is salvation... In no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And we say, Apostle Peter, to whom do you refer? Well, it's the same person he referred to way back in the Gospels when the Lord Jesus said, Who do men say that I am? And the Apostle Peter said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. There's salvation in no other There's no other place, there's no priest, there's no pope, there's no pastor, there's no Bible in and of itself that can save a person. It is the person of Jesus Christ that saves. 1 Timothy chapter 2, if you would turn there if you're quick enough, and I will read that for us. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3, 4 and 5. In a discussion, the Apostle Paul says to Timothy that uh, there is the need to pray and intercede for the kings and those in high positions. And in verse 3, he says, this is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. Notice verse 4, who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. He is the mediator between God and men. John chapter 14. In John chapter 14, a very familiar portion of scripture beginning in verse 5. One of the disciples, Thomas, whose questions I always appreciate because they give us an insight into the answers from the Lord Jesus. John 14 verse 5, Thomas says to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And Jesus says to him, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Then turn back a couple of pages to John chapter 10, if you would. And we'll read just one verse in this portion. 
a discussion about Jesus being the good shepherd. In John chapter 10 and verse 9, the Lord Jesus makes the message of the gospel exclusive. He says, I am a door. No, he does not. He says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. When you put Christ alone versus the church alone, the teaching of the scripture asserts with absolute certainty that it is Christ alone. The church cannot save. Your membership in a church, your involvement and your service in a church, your partaking of the emblems in our Lord's table, even going through the waters of baptism, none of these things can save an individual. Only Jesus Christ can save a person. And so our first point, solo Christo versus sola ecclesia. Secondly, solo Christo versus legalism. Other words, Christ alone versus legalism. Now, it's a word that is used a great deal in church today, usually in a negative sense, and that's right, it should be. Legalism takes many forms. The first and most dangerous form is the belief that keeping the moral laws of God will bring about salvation. We've spent many hours dealing with that. Lucas spent many, much time dealing with that the other day. And we know that's not the case because Paul said, by the works of the, of the flesh, no human being is justified in his sight. There are no deeds of the law that you and I can commit and do that will somehow give us the honour and favour of God for salvation. It's impossible. But that's not the form of legalism I'm concerned with, first of all. The legalism that I am referring to this morning is the legalism of adding works or deeds to the gospel of Christ. For example, the Catholic Church and many other denominations add baptism, church membership, participation in the Mass, and many other rites and ceremonies. And by doing so, they preach another gospel. Please note this. Please get this. If it is not... Christ alone, it is not Christ at all. Jesus Christ plus or minus anything is not the gospel according to the scriptures. Surprisingly, perhaps to some, this form of legalism of adding to the gospel was seen even in the early church. I want you to see in Acts chapter 15, if you would turn with me there, let me read a few portion, a few passages here and some verses from Acts chapter 15. Just to illustrate what it is we're referring to in Acts chapter 15, beginning in verse number one. And we are looking for that which is being added to the message of the gospel. Acts chapter 15 and verse one. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate, boy, I would like to have heard that dissension and debate. Anyway, uh, in that dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem and to the apostles and the elders about this question. 
So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the believers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up. You can always count on Peter. Peter stood up and said to them, brothers, you know that in the early days, God made a choice among you that by my mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just As they will. Here we see in this portion of scripture the very definition of legalism adding to the gospel and saying, unless you do this on top of the work of Christ by faith through grace, or by grace through faith, I should say, then you cannot be saved. Interestingly, with apostolic authority, Paul, Barnabas, Peter, and James all brought about a mini-reformation to the Jerusalem assembly right here in the Scriptures. The irony that I think that caused me some humour in the study uh, when I was doing this yesterday is that the Roman Catholic Church believed that Peter is the first in the succession of popes. And yet it was this apostle who so fervently opposed the legalism that has subtly crept into the early church. There's some irony there for us to consider here in this text. And so we see that legalism, Christ alone versus legalism, Christ alone versus the church. And then thirdly, I would like you to see a more contemporary problem today, which is solo Christo versus inclusivism. Christ alone versus inclusivism. Say there's a lot of isms and schisms here. Well, there are. These are the real terms for them, and I hope I'm describing them correctly and effectively for you. This final subpoint under this heading was not so problematic in the Protestant Reformation, although it was there, but it is a major player in today's Christian landscape, and I couldn't leave it out. So inclusivism, please note, inclusivism teaches that Christianity is the only religion. That's true. We all say, yes, that's correct. But, and I put a big but here in bold and circled it, but that this salvation could be made available through means other than explicit faith in Christ. The inclusivist believes that those who adhere to other religions can be saved by responding to God's revelation in creation or through the elements of truth contained within their non-Christian religion. That is, that is deadly. 
This inclusivism has the concept that there's some truth to that religion and there's plenty of truth to all of the religions because if there were not, people would not believe them. The devil isn't foolish and so there is sown seeds of truth in every religion. And the inclusivist says, as long as you believe the aspects that are true, you can gain salvation. Or as long as you look out there and you say, there is definitely a God, I am included in the Christian faith, though I know nothing of the Lord Jesus. At the heart of this inclusivist's view is the erroneous teaching that there is a way to be saved outside of Christ. In contrast to legalism, which adds to Christ, inclusivism removes from him the salvation which he alone can provide. The verses we have already looked up indicate that Christ alone, without addition or subtraction, is the only means of salvation. Now that is declaring the exclusivity of Christ But I said that the point was declaring and delighting in the exclusivity of Christ. And so before I move to my next point, we need to take some time to delight in it. See, as Bible-believing Christians, we tend to defend the truth so much that we forget to delight in it. As a pastor... I am guilty because I am constantly contending for the faith once delivered to our fathers, which is my calling. But I often find myself so wearied in that battle. And one of the reasons why I'm so wearied in that battle is that I spend so much time defending the truth of the gospel and defending the pages of scripture and wanting to stand up for the faith that I forget often to delight In the truth of the gospel. And so it is absolutely essential this morning that I do not move forward until you have the privilege of delighting in this. And one sure antidote, if I may this morning, one sure antidote to spiritual fatigue, one sure antidote to apathy is to stop and simply bathe in the glory of the gospel. Do that and you won't be fatigued. And you cannot be apathetic. And so this morning, let me just put this out for you to consider. Consider this morning the privilege that is ours to know the exclusivity of Christ for salvation. Ponder for just a moment, where would you be today had God not revealed this grand truth to you? Imagine the religious rites that some of us would be engaged in. Imagine the sacramentalism that some of us would be performing. That which would pervade our life because we had not learned and believed that Christ alone is the way and the truth and the life. For surely your heart and my heart would say with the apostle, Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom And the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever. Amen. Surely that is the cry of our heart. But lest we do too much delighting, which is 
not a great temptation. Let me add in an application here for us too. Let me bring to your attention the urgent need for us to proclaim this truth to a culture that has entered the wide gate and travels the broad way that leads to destruction. Millions upon millions of people today are engaged in a form of worship which will damn their souls for eternity. We have been commissioned to bring the truth about Christ alone to them and even to die as martyrs in this endeavour. And let me tell you some truths about this. We will be hated. We will be persecuted. We will be opposed. We will be ridiculed. But does not truth repel falsehood? Does not the darkness hate the light? Is this not a spiritual battle? Are the disciples of Jesus to simply stand by and watch religion destroy the souls of men? We must stand like the reformers against church alone, against legalism, against inclusivism, because we are called to uphold the truth in an age of increasing hostility towards the exclusivity of Christ and the message of the gospel. We are ambassadors for Christ. Now, from the tone of my voice, you probably thought, all right, that was the end of the message. We're about to close in prayer. No, you're wrong. Number three, we have one other major point that we need to take care of this morning. We have already considered declaring and delighting in the exclusivity of Christ. Now, and perhaps even in a greater sense, we want to declare and delight in the sufficiency of Christ. And if you know me, you know that time is the enemy on such a subject as this. Declaring and delighting in the sufficiency of Christ. The doctrine of the sufficiency of Christ teaches us that every aspect of salvation is fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So we are saying that it is exclusively about Christ, but we're saying now that its totality is in Christ. There is a small but major difference in that. So it's exclusively in Christ, but it's also totally encumbered, encompassed in Christ. He is, not the, he is not only the exclusive means of salvation, he is also the sufficiency for salvation. So let me explain this another way. To refer to Christ and his sacrifice as sufficient is to understand that we are insufficient. That no works performed by us can ever bring sufficiency. This then is the fundamental problem with religion today and particularly the Roman Catholic Church. If there is a means by which I can procure my own salvation outside of Christ, then he is insufficient and I am all-sufficient. Hopefully we know that only pride, only pride could ever cause us to think that we are able to save ourselves. It was God's intention to humble us 
by calling us to dependence upon someone other than ourselves. And that someone is his son. You know why it's so hard to be a Christian? You know why it's so hard to enter the kingdom of God? Because it requires me to say, I cannot do this. Salvation cannot be had through me. And what's so hard about that, like the rich young ruler found, is that it costs everything. Everything to be a Christian. So let's look for a few moments at the sufficiency of Christ as it stands in contrast to the teaching of the Catholic Church in the Reformation. And so here I have entitled this The Sufficiency of Christ versus Sacramentalism. And let me just explain really quickly and briefly what we mean here. Sacramentalism, that is the belief system that performing rites on an ongoing basis will not only bring salvation, but will also maintain it. This is what the reformers fought against so vigilantly, so uh, voraciously against it. They were so serious about maintaining the truth of the gospel. They stood against the practices of mass, of penance, of good works, of confession, and many other religious duties. Sacramentalism was and sadly still is the cornerstone of religion today. Sacramentalism says that salvation is achieved by doing, by effort. Solo Christo says salvation can only be achieved through Christ and it is done, not doing, done. So I want to point out just a few comparisons here before we draw to a close. And uh, these are all available in the notes for you to look at some more uh, in the future if you would like to. There's five comparisons of theology here. Roman Catholic theology and my little table here is on one side and then we have the reformers teaching in the middle and then we have the sufficiency of Christ as seen in the scriptures. So quickly let me take you through this. Number one, partaking of the Eucharist was necessary to bring about and maintain salvation. Roman Catholic teaching. It meant that as we gather together today in a form, we would uh, partake of the uh, Holy Mass, we would partake of the Eucharist, and in doing so, it would bring salvation and it would maintain salvation. Okay? The Reformers had this to say about that. Partaking of the Lord's Supper is a serious activity, but the elements are symbolic reminders. And I'd like us to turn to Hebrews chapter 7. In fact, if you find Hebrews, that's where we're going to park for the next few minutes. Hebrews is the book on this subject. The book of Hebrews and chapter 7. And we're just going to read one verse in this particular portion. Find with me verse number 27. And we read this, he has no need, this is Jesus Christ, like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. That is incredibly clear. There is no need for this matter of transubstantiation, which is the idea that uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, his actual body and blood is actually on offer before us, that we would partake, that we would be saved again and thereby maintain our salvation. Here in Hebrews 7, we are told that he offered himself once 
And that was sufficient and always will be. Secondly, the Roman Catholic teaching of intercession of the saints, which held that other believers could function as a mediator between God and one's own soul. The idea here is that I could pray to the saints who've gone before and they would bring that prayer to God the Father, God the Son, and they would mediate on my behalf because they had enough credited righteousness in their account, so to speak. Well, no doubt the reformers had a response to that. Christ and Christ alone as our great high priest, is the only one who holds the office of mediator in every sense. In Hebrews chapter 7, verse 23, where we are already, we read in these two verses, three verses, Hebrews 7, verse 23, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Christ is not dead. Christ is alive. Christ functions and serves in the office as mediator at this very moment. He is interceding on my behalf before the Father. No saint No priest, no pope, no pastor, Christ and Christ alone. Thirdly, the Roman Catholic Church asserts the essential need to maintain one's right standing before God by means of the performing of rites. We've talked about that. And the reformers said Christ's sacrifice for sin was sufficient, is sufficient and always will be sufficient. Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 and 12. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy place, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. An eternal redemption. For those folks who would have us believe that uh, salvation does not have a permanency attached to it, they cannot have the salvation that Christ brought then. Because Christ said, I did this and it is an eternal redemption. Not a partial or a temporary redemption. We have other verses we could look at. Let's go to number four. The requirement, this is the Catholic Church's teaching The requirement to confess sins to a human priest who would act as an advocate before God is essential. The reformers say Christ alone offers advocacy for the sinning believer and he will forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 1 John 1.9, we won't turn there if we confess our sins. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But we're not skipping 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, and they do in brackets, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ 
the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. We have present tense, continuous an advocate. And he doesn't take a day off. Constant, eternal, perpetual advocacy for the sinning believer. Last but not least, by any means, number five, we have talked about this. Lucas spent some time talking about this. The process of purging or purgatory in the afterlife. Well, the reformers, again, had something to say about that. Either a human has trusted Christ for salvation and is wholly redeemed, or he has not and remains under the condemnation of God. First John chapter 5, please, just turn across there for me. Verse 12, it couldn't be clearer. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. In John chapter 3 and verse 36, we are told there that if you do not possess the Son, if you have not obeyed the word of the gospel, then you remain under the condemnation of God. I am flying through these matters, but they are essential to our understanding of the core truth of the biblical gospel. I want to read a number of quotes from the reformers regarding their pursuit of biblical truth and the tenacity that they held for solo Christo. Martin Luther wrote to his supervisor, Johann von Stapitz, I don't even know if that's said right. But this is what he says. I teach that people should put their trust in nothing but Jesus alone. Not in their prayers, not in their merits, not in their own good deeds. That was to his supervisor. I can only imagine how he responded to that. Zacharias Ursinus, some of you might have heard of him, a 16th century German theologian, in response to Christ's priestly office, writes this. And you might have to read this again in, uh, in the notes. All these things Christ does, obtains and perfects, not only by his merits, but also by his efficacy. He is therefore said to be a mediator, both in merit and efficacy, because he does not only by his sacrifice merit for us, but he also, by virtue of his spirit, effectually confers upon us his benefits, which consist in righteousness and eternal life. Read that in the notes sometime. You'll have to read that ten times to really get what it's saying. Now, there is no way that John Calvin would stay quiet on this subject. And here is his weighing in on the matter. The Mass that we have talked about, the Eucharist, inflicts signal dishonor upon Christ, buries and oppresses his cross, consigns his death to oblivion and takes away the benefit which came to us from it. He says further, in the whole discussion in Hebrews 9 to 10, the apostle contends not only that there is no other sacrifice, but that this one was offered once, only once, and is never to be repeated. We're almost there. The concern of the reformers in their rejection of many of Rome's practices was not to be divisive. It was not to be an annoyance for the sake of being an annoyance, but because of their solo Christo conviction. 
The reformers contended that this was no mere debating point. Life and death eternally hangs upon faith in Christ alone. A book that I have been reading by a man called Stephen Wellham writes this. To affirm Christ alone in all of his uniqueness and sufficiency is life. But to affirm anything else is ultimately a compromise of the gospel. So what do we do with all of that, church? So much information, many, many things said here, much I'm sure that has been lost or uh, in that moment of a lack of concentration as it always happens whenever someone preaches. What do we do with all that? Well, I want to give you some application and some closing thoughts. And these are critical. So if you need to stand up for a moment and then sit back down, I want you to get these closing application and thoughts. The sufficiency of Christ in salvation is a source of great delight for many reasons. And here are some of them for our consideration. I'm just going to read them because I'm not going to be able to get any further. The first precious, blessed source of great delight regarding the sufficiency of Christ is this. The present continuous pardon and cleansing for sin because of Christ's effectual sacrifice. And the key words, present and continuous. It's done and yet it's still being done. Not by works of righteousness that we have done. But according to his mercy he saved us. This in Ephesians 1 and verse 7 and 1 John 1 7. Place this cleansing in the present tense. Which means that we are presently being cleansed. Constantly we're being held up in the cleansing power of Jesus Christ. If that were to for one moment stop then we would enter into a religious tradition like that of the Roman Catholic Church and we would have to try to meet the demands of a holy, righteous God which are impossible on our own. The second wonderful, delightful aspect of Christ's sufficiency, the present continuous relationship with God as his children because Christ stands as our advocate. We are not his children today and then we sin and tomorrow we are no longer. We are suddenly orphaned from the family of God. The the wonderful truth of the gospel that so many have missed and my heart bleeds for those people is that for one moment in time to the next, they do not know whether they are a member of God's family. What a tragedy. And yet the gospel says in 1 John 2, 1, that if you sin, you have an advocate. You don't have to wonder, well, am I God's or am I not? Have I sinned so much that suddenly in the weight, in the scales of of, uh, moral uh, relativism and in the scales of of, uh, moral understanding, am I in fact saved or not? The answer to that is, yes, you are, because you have an advocate who ever pleads before the Son, uh, before the Father. Number three, the boldness. And the confidence to enter into his presence and find mercy and grace in times of need because he is our great high priest. Hebrews 4.14 and verse 16 says, let us come boldly. Let us come boldly, boldly before the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and grace to help in time of trouble. Number four. 
the assurance of eternal life because of Christ's ongoing mediatorial role in salvation. We've mentioned this and that is that we can be assured that our eternal life is fixed and it's sealed because it does not depend upon us. John MacArthur says, and I agree with him so wonderfully, as only he could say this, he says, if, if you were able to lose your salvation, you would. And that's true. Every one of us would lose our salvation. Every one of us. But it's not the work of us. It's God who began the work and God who will complete it, according to Philippians 1 and verse 6. Number 6. Now you're starting to wonder, oh boy, how many of these has he got? Not too many more. Number six, the privilege of God, of knowing God's everlasting love because Christ presently intercedes for us. I won't take the time to read Romans 8, 34 to 39, but in that portion we read that the chosen, the elect of God, experience the everlasting love of God that is not dependent on death or life or persecution or famine or nakedness of sword. Nothing will separate us. From the love of Christ, because he stands as our intercessor for us. Number seven, the freedom from fear of God's wrath and judgment, because Christ has set us free. There is now no condemnation. Galatians tells us in chapter five and verse one that we are free in Christ. We don't have to wonder, am I going to experience the wrath of God because of this, this sin that I have committed in my life? Well, we've already dealt with the advocacy aspect, but also there is no fear now before God. He may discipline and that brings a sense of fear, but not an eternal ultimate fear whereby God would pour out upon us his wrath as he did on the son. It's been done. Number eight, the opportunity to perform truly Good works because of Christ's righteousness being credited to us. Ephesians 2.10 tells us that, you know, it's a marvelous thing. I don't know if you've thought about this much, but the world talks about good works. And in actual fact, the good works they're talking about are evil works that are heaped up against destruction against them and will one day be used against them in the court of God's holy law. But as a Christian, we have the privilege to be the only ones in the world who can truly perform good works that bring glory to God because of the good work that he has performed for us. Number nine. Now you're thinking, well, he likes round numbers. There can only be one more. And you're right, there is. Ten. Number nine. The privilege of partaking of the divine nature and increasing in our faith because of Christ's power to save. Second Peter 1, 3-7 talks about the fact that you and I, when we came to understand the gospel and believed, we partook of the divine nature and that partaking then led us to a place of sanctification whereby we add to our faith virtue and to virtue other things and we continue building in that Christian walk and that is the privilege because of Christ's power to save us and the fact that he is still presently saving and sanctifying us. And our final aspect for consideration in delighting in the sufficiency of Christ. Number 10, the power to live a life that pleases Christ because he presently dwells in us and lives for us. Galatians 2.20 It is no longer I who live, but Christ 
who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I think the whole summary of the sufficiency of Christ is not captured in any other song in history better than Charity Bancroft's. And I've read this to us before. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Behold him there, the risen lamb, my perfect spotless righteousness. The great unchangeable I am, the king of glory and of grace. One with himself, I cannot die. My soul is purchased by his blood. My life is hid with Christ on high, with Christ my Savior and my God. Solo Christo. Heavenly Father, thank you for the attention of uh, these, my people, the ones you've called me to shepherd. Thank you for them bearing with uh, a longer message. Thank you, more importantly and above all of these things, for the Lord Jesus. Thank you for salvation that is ours through him, that there is no other name. There is no other way. There is no other truth. There is no other life except that which is dispensed by him. And so, Lord, we pray, we ask that you would help us to have a greater understanding of these truths, that you would cause them to penetrate to the core of our being, that, Lord, if there are those who know not the truth of this aspect of the gospel, this core teaching of the gospel, that today they would have that revealed to them, illuminated to them by the Spirit of God. Thank you for the reformers. Thank you for those who stood by and even gave up their lives for these truths that we would understand that it is by grace, through faith, in Christ alone, for the glory of God. In Jesus' name, amen.